John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 779.PR2513, certificate number 42914. A message to Garcia. Where is the message? No, no, no! Un mensaje para Garcia. Or is it Garcia? No, he's, uh, he's Cuban. Oh. It's the it's the one thing I know about Spanish is that sometimes the C is is a th because it's Castilian or in Spain yeah, yeah. my imp- my impression of Caribbean Spanish is that it's often perceived in Europe as being um, a little bit I mean lazy I don't want to perpetuate hmm. any kind of hemispheric stereotyping but you know they'll leave off final syllables it's a little more mush mouth it's, it's probably the same thing european honestly it's probably the same thing that england thinks about americans it's generally true of all uh european countries you get and their a, colonials you get across the ocean things just chill out a little bit the french are not interested in the quebecois the dutch are not interested in uh afrikaans the <laughs> uh the spanish yeah they don't they don't recognize is, but is there any Latin example America? where the colonial version is actually just a, a much more like uptight, high-intensity accent of the language? Yeah, Maybe American Australian. English. Like, <laughs> if you think about what, we're, what, what uh, they're talking about in New York City. I guess. I'm just thinking of the, Amer- you know, the American uh, accent that gets stereotyped over there is some kind of eh, southern drawl. If you just, I mean, if you think about Austrian as opposed to uh, the German that they speak in Hamburg. I'm not sure what the difference is. Super, like, leave off the end of the words. They're, it's very, like, lazy. And you don't think of the Austrians as especially lazy. Not Arnold. But, um, but yeah, I think to, to high German speakers, Austrian just sounds really slurry. There's not going to be a lot of Spanish in today's show. Well, that's too bad. No Diego Maradona this time. Uh, there, uh, have you ever, by the way, have you ever heard the phrase, a message to Garcia? Did yeah, that ring a bell? I have. It, it, it's not some... Can you use it colloquially? I cannot. It's... A, a message to Garcia. It, it's, it always sounds to me like a, um, like a Spinal Tap film. <laughs> is it not, is it not a, sp- a Spinal Tap adjacent, um, like well, I you, can name every some, kind of nut? You think it's some kind of mockumentary? Yeah. Uh, no, but there have been two movie adaptations. Uh, the, no, I'm not aware of it. I, I thought it might be a decent omnibus because it was a once insanely, um, popular 
uh, work that spawned a whole language trope that lasted 50 years or more, 100 years, and is now almost entirely forgotten. So but, it's not. But we'll it, revive it. It's not. It's not just a meme. It's not a. Uh, it's not a catchphrase. It's actually an event. No, it's a, a full. There, there is an event, and there's a subsequent uh, essay, like a fifteen hundred word essay. The have you been following the anti work movement over the last couple of years? I mean, I, you've been living the anti work movement for the last <laughs> few decades. But anti work movement. Oh. Let me let me just guess. It's about the idea that uh, we work too much, more than we're meant to do. And most of it is busy work and, mm-hmm. and, uh, doesn't it's busy work. And, uh, if we work smarter, not longer slash harder, we get more accomplished with less effort and there should be more free time for our souls. Am I, yeah. am I getting to, you are, to, in, you are on the right track because I think like many people, you can sense one thing of many that is wrong with our current society, something that you would never design into a society you know like so many of the things we live with they were problems that no one would choose but now we just seem stuck with them and we just shrug yeah it's insane the way we treat health insurance in this country or the way we treat the environment or the way we treat and work has recently come under a lot of scrutiny especially i think because of the covid uh, pandemic giving us a chance to kind of step back and think wait a second it doesn't have to be this way when i when i listen to my mom talk about growing up on a farm during the depression and she says things like, on Thursday, grandma and I did the wash or the wash, as they would have said. She doesn't say wash and she'd be furious if I suggested she did. But uh, She's you, from a wash adjacent part of the country. No, no, I mean, they, they she's not said, that far from Missouri. <laughs> they would have said wash, but she's, she feels like she's left all that behind. But, you know, they woke up at dawn and did laundry all day because um, – they had a. They didn't have an electric washing machine, and also they ironed or arned the sheets. Got a worse and iron pillowcases. And Can you imagine an ironed sheet? I mean, you, they, you needed to. You couldn't do the sheets without ironing them. And she said, in the in the dead of winter, they would hang up the wet clothes outside on the line, not having a dryer, and wait for them to freeze, and then go out and hit them with bats mm. to break the ice off of the wet clothes. And that was how they dried was just froze and then <laughs> hit them until the water fell off. What are you getting at here? We need to go back to those days. Well, no, what I'm saying is with the invention of the just uh, washer and dryer, we save so much labor, mm-hmm. But somehow we have redirected that labor to a bunch of dumb emails and stuff where labor saving devices seemed like they should have produced free time, right? Considering the hard work that we needed to do before just to have clean underpants. Instead, John, a small capital class real, you know, got that bug for efficiency and thought, what if we tricked the rest of the country into thinking this was an ultimate good? Wait a minute. You're saying... That the that a small capital class does not have our best interests at heart. I mean, the, a lot of the anti-work movement does have a roots in this kind of socialist or anarchist theory. Um, so they're advocating taxing the rich because we <laughs> we have a strong opinion about that here. I think it's compatible with Marxism. Okay, you're right. That's the one good thing you can say about taxing the rich. And this episode. 
But, you know, modern kind of COVID-era anti-work critiques cover a whole spectrum of things. I don't think anybody's trying to outlaw labor. They're just saying that the system as it currently exists has so many inequities, many of which have been exposed by the pandemic, you know, really have thrown into sharp contrast, you know, the terrible situations of, you know, workplace safety and just the fact that wages are too low and sick leave is impossible. And now if your kids are out of school, you know, how do you juggle that? And, you know, all these assumptions we kind of had about work that, you know, the main thing is the, you know, the grind mentality, you know, like the most important thing is to hustle now. And that shows that you're, you're superior to this flawed economic system. People are now starting to say, no, 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 wait a second. The thing you could do would be to change the system so that it doesn't have a huge number of victims and a small number of winners. This sounds like the plot of Nine to Five. <laughs> yes. Starring... <laughs> First, you need to find Dabney Coleman. You need to chain him up in his office in some humiliating way. Right. Attach him to a garage door opener. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the anti-work subreddit and continue to protest that Dabney Coleman needs to take it on the chin. Uh, but you know, thanks to the internet, I said Reddit, but that's actually where a lot of this anti-work sentiment is starting to end up. Just a lot of young people who for the first time are thinking, wait a second, what if my boss doesn't have my best interests at heart? Right. And stories about bad bosses and victimized employees, uh, can start to get around and it can lead to, um, you know, the kind of the recent spate of unionizing we've started to see. I am with the young people on this topic. All Starbucks's should unionize. Yes. Even if... But I do not believe the House of Representatives staffers should unionize. <laughs> I think that that is a job with a certain kind of, uh, you know, that's a political job, not a general services job. Uh, Omnibus is more of an a uh, Amazon unions, yes, police unions, no kind of a show. 100%. <laughs> I think the police union should be abolished and Amazon should be unionized. But a lot of these critiques are interesting because you really do realize how much we've uh, swallowed this whole idea that, well, I really need to, you know, it, as a good person, I need to be accountable to my boss and a lot of my meaning comes from my loyalty to my company. And it's about time people sort of got shaken by the shoulders and told, wait a second, your company is not loyal to you. Well, they that, will fire you the second it's more profitable to do so. That's so, a modern, uh, like, aberration, right? Yes. I, I mean, the, Com the... Maybe because companies culturally did used to take care of people better or were you, expected to. You work for 20 years and you retired with a, with a full retirement, right? I mean, there was a sense that your loyalty to a company, although that may have been I think a that late period, capitalist I think aberration. that period was the aberration. You yeah. know, there was a brief time when our civilization, or, you know, our society had that artificial post-war uh, uh, affluence. And, right, and, uh, and uh, wealth organized we, labor had power. And wealth that we could siphon from the global south. And so we had this moment where it seemed like that was sustainable. And, and that's the boomers. And now the mass... They, the boomers ran the, that into the ground. And they took it all with them. <laughs> and now the mask is off and bosses are not even pretending anymore. Right. Um, but we also live now in a, in a largely service slash infotainment culture where we don't have manufacturing, right? Isn't that the, right. the, the old saw that we don't make anything anymore? Right, but your boss is still going to want to control you. He's yeah. going to want you to come into the office whether that's necessary or not. He's going to want you to email him back at 9 p.m. whether that serves your lifestyle interest or not. My sense of the early days of the pandemic was that you, that it really showed us how many 
unnecessary layers of management there were and how desperately those people wanted to look like they did something. Well, wanted employees in the office because that was how they could. That's that's the only work they did was if, walk around. If I'm around not coming and, up behind people's chairs saying, hey, hey, buddy. Let's talk about those CPS reports. How's it going? Let's see what's up with the Harrison account. Um, right. So, did, like so much stuff in the early part of the pandemic, it seemed like, wow, maybe this is a revolution. Maybe everything changes. Well, it, it kind of was. I mean, there was that great resignation where enough people got out of the workforce for whatever reason that it we now have a, at least a temporary shortage of labor, which puts right. labor in a great negotiating position. But it was supposed to also mean that we never that 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 twenty five percent of the people stopped driving, that thirty percent of the the buildings downtown would be empty what, and turned into housing. What if the what? Yeah, what if cities were designed better so you didn't have a center that was full during the day and empty at night and then a ring around that was empty during the day and full at night. That yeah. seems silly. There, there it just seemed like such a world of possibility. And then I don't like all, uh, great social revolutions. The middle managers decided they wanted people back in the office to have shoulders to rub. The big managers realized there wasn't any money in, in, in modifying uh, society or at yeah, least but, no short-term money. In and it. The, the cities realized it would be easier to just to try to get tenants back downtown than it would be to, to redesign zoning and uh, and city planning. And governments were busy arguing about stuff that doesn't matter at all. That is correct. So none of these problems were actually getting solved, but there, you know, there there is kind of a, a very mainstreamed let's rethink work. What? Really? Uh, uh, conversation going on what right magazines now. magazines are you reading? Or is this all happening on Reddit? This is all happening in the deep web, okay. John. Deep web. It has not yet made uh, the Atlantic, so you don't I, know about it. I used to be very online, and now I am not very online. I mean, I'm not recommending that people spend more time on Reddit just so they can sympathize with the intro of this show. Right. That's the last thing I would ever do, especially not you. Thank you. Um, but... How do you feel about it? About anti-work? Well, because I'm, I'm a freelancer, so I'm a weird one to ask. But you, you, you work hard to motivate yourself to work. I do, but I really never like the second I was away from the trappings of office culture, I realized what a huge load off my neck. That famous expression. What a huge load off my neck it was. <laughs> what a load off your neck. Because you did, of the two of us, of all of the hosts of Omnibus, you... I had a cubicle job the longest. Had a larger time where you wore a lanyard around your neck and punched in and punched out. Yeah, I had a parking pass and everything. Wow. And... How many door? How many security doors did you have to get through from the front door to your <laughs> desk? Actually, zero. That's probably not the same anymore. Yeah. I mean, if you work for Vulcan or Microsoft, I, I think you I have didn't to, have to even swipe in the elevator. We were just a 14. footloose and fancy free uh, healthcare staffing company. Whoa. And they were very benevolent overlords routinely in local magazines as, you know, the nicest employers in the state. And my the person I directly reported to was lovely and, you know, probably nicer to me than I my abilities deserved. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to hear from futurelings listening to the show. Maybe you can go on a on a Futurelings fan page, and I'd like to find the person who has to go through the most number of locked doors to get to their desk. So on your way to work tomorrow, please count how many locked doors you have to get through, and then 
write it out. Well, speaking of which, speaking of locked doors, I assume you're not watching. Did you not watch Severance on Apple TV? Do you have you guys have Apple TV for Ted Lasso reasons? We do for Ted Lasso reasons, but I have not watched Severance. You guys should watch oh, Severance. Okay, um, it's a good television a, program. You're saying trenchant critique of you know how? Do you remember how for um. For five years, there was one TV show that was The Twilight Zone. Mm. And then for 50 years, there were no TV shows that were The Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And now every TV show is The Twilight Zone. <laughs> we're making up for last time. But is it one this of is those, maybe the best of them. Is it one of those British shows that like uh, like Slow Horses, where just as you get into it, you realize it's only six episodes long? It's America, and the first season's only nine episodes. Mm. Um, every show now should be 40 episodes long, and they should all be great. <laughs> like F Troop. <laughs> It's a trenchant critique of workplace culture, but I was watching one last night that just had a moment where, just kind of an innocent moment where a character has said, hey, uh, it is told, hey, can, uh, can I talk to you in my office? And I just had like this, this, um, fris- this shiver of uh, recognition of uh, that moment of fear of having somebody in your life who could say that to you and you would not know what was going to happen. And it, it could impact everything about your ability to see a doctor or uh, pay your bills. And I, I did work in offices for a little while, and when someone said, can I see you in my office, I knew exactly what it meant. It meant, you're fired. It meant, stop smoking weed in the men's room. <laughs> it always meant I was fired, and so it was a great relief to me. But, you know, but we, we you know, for that's normal for almost everybody listening to this, and I just realized, uh, wow, it's been 15 years or more since I've had to worry about somebody who could say that to me, because right. I've been lucky enough to be a freelancer for 15 years. Right. And... Everybody else is living with that endless fear and trauma of just what a dope of a manager could say or do next. Uh, and this is a show about a weird confluence of work and anti-work, of capital and labor and work and anti-work in the 1890s. Whoa, how fun. A time when maybe you would not think of uh, of these kinds of issues being... Top of mind. Well, you, we, we love to talk about the kind of back to, back to Art Nouveau, sort of fin de siècle era of the late nineteenth century. This episode is going to have the arts and crafts movement, Yay. and it's even going to have a, a commune of weirdos in upstate New York. <laughs> Yay! It's peak omnibus, <laughs> and you and I can talk about how we don't have jobs. It's also got the Spanish American War. Okay, weirdly, good, good. good. Um, I can help there. Cast your mind back, if you will, to <laughs> April of eighteen ninety-eight. I'm uh, there. I can smell the gunpowder, which in the, is when in the air. Garcia and his uh, titular message uh, first came to the public consciousness. Wait, um, is this is this a was the is this a Teddy Roosevelt story? It's not going to have much Teddy Roosevelt. He's a little bit incidental. Okay. Do you need Rough Riders in all your... No. You no, know? I'm fine. <laughs> does, the, does the main get sunk at any point? Yeah, let's sink the main right now. Okay, let's do it. So, one, two, three. <laughs> what do you... was it? Oh, no. Oh, a boiler explosion. I'm William Randolph Hearst. Let's invade Cuba. It was a torpedo, I guess. I'm Joseph Pulitzer. The Cubans did it. Mm, the Lusitania was full of books. In February of 1898... Oh, the Lusitania is going to come out, too, by the way. Right on. Fast forward. In February of 1898, a USS, little USS battleship called the Maine is sunk in Havana, or sinks, I guess I should right, say. Right, right. In Havana Harbor. Sinkitude. It's been clear that war with Spain is coming. You know, there have been a series of Cuban independence uh, wars that have been going on for decades. 
But this um, was really about the Philippines the whole time, let's be honest. Oh, this is your hot take on the Spanish-American War? <laughs> it was more Spanish, less American. In uh, in Cuba, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, William Randolph Hearst and I'm Joseph Pulitzer wrong, but... are, are really angry in America up. Yes. For po- the possibility of war with Spain. They are painting the Cuban rebels as... Freedom fighters, children of the 80s like us will love this idea that uh, Central American rebels are, are, uh, are the, ethically the... <laughs> identical to the founding fathers in every way. <laughs> and also like the bell of the ball to American industrialists and newspapermen. And political conservatives. And William McKinley, who is the president at the time, has been elected on a platform of peace. We're going to settle this. There's going to be no war with Spain. Uh, we're going to be bigger than this. But then... Bad luck strikes the USS Maine. To this day, was it a mine? Was it a coal what burner? Wahoppin. <laughs> I have a widow wet wagon. <laughs> we don't know what sunk the Maine, but the press is quick to seize on this as a pretext. Sadness. Uh, do you think sadness it sunk the Maine? It sank out of sadness. Like it was just having a bad day? Yeah. That happens to battleships. Then how do you explain the, the, the flames and stuff? Oh, you know, I mean, self-sabotage. It, have you ever been sad, Ken? Are you saying the main like messed up its own life because it couldn't handle success? I, I'm saying that sometimes being sad feels like being on fire. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm writing this down right uh-huh, now. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, suddenly we are briefly at war with Spain, but way back in... Uh, no, sorry, I guess a couple... Oh, it's not really a brief war. We don't go to war until April 25th, three months after the Maine is sunk. I guess it's pretty short. It it's, was just a summer, right? Yeah, it was more of a summer thing, right? A little bit of a summer war. Tell me more, tell me more. Did you fight a summer war? Did you fight in Cuba? Did you charge up a hill? Dun, 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 dun. dun. Uh, the same month... Uh, just a few weeks before the U.S. officially declares war with Spain, which would make it two months before they invade Cuba, we need to know more about the rebels and what they're up to. They're they're holding a good chunk of territory in mountainous eastern Cuba, but the War Department doesn't know what's going on. So an Army First Lieutenant by the name of Andrew Rowan, who supposedly knows the area, has good Spanish and so forth, you know, a, a crack serviceman, is called into an adjutant general's office in Washington and is told that he needs to meet with General Calixto Garcia, the uh, a former plantation owner who is now one of these founding father, freedom fighter level heroes, um, ready to do battle with Spain in eastern Cuba. Rowan is given phony papers that make him look like a diplomatic attache to Chile. Mm-hmm. And he is put on a steamer from New York and sent to Jamaica. So he's not a very good attaché to Chile if he's got lost and wound up in Jamaica. I love any story that has somebody with phony diplomatic papers. I think I would rather be a phony attaché than a real one. Fewer yeah. meetings, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, especially if you're like in Jamaica. Sure. This is a this is a doctor no or something. Except you've got some mission. I'm guessing he's got a mission. He's got the titular mission of the movie. Uh, of the uh, of the entry, a message to Garcia. Although, actually, in accurate historical fact, he does not have a message. Oh, okay. He he is uh, being so he's far. being sent to collect, not deliver information. 
a message from Garcia. <laughs> right. He he needs to bring back a message from Garcia. So uh-huh. we've got preposition troubles already. Uh-huh. Um, in Jamaica, he hooks up with uh, uh, you know some local operative who has connection to the Cuban rebels. They get him on an open boat to Cuba. They manage to make landfall. And after an eight-day horseback journey up into the Sierra, whatever mountains of eastern Cuba, he finally arrives at the camp of uh, General Calisto Garcia. And the mission he's been given has been to actually, uh, what do they call it, embed himself with the rebels and find out what their strengths are, you know, to, to continue to update the War Department from Cuba as to how the rebels are doing. So all of the diplomatic fakery was just to get him there or is he still representing himself as an attache oh no the cubans know i, I mean the, okay. the rebels know who he is I this see. is okay. just in case he's, inter- he's in case he's intercepted en route right. by you know spanish cuba he's got these papers saying oh no i uh i was supposed to go to chile but i shouldn't have taken that left turn at, at albuquerque uh, at kingston yeah mm-hmm. Um, so he's been told to stay and, and update the war department on what the rebels are up to, but, but Rowan is not great at this mission. He only stays a few hours Hmm. and he, instead he tells Garcia, Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find out what you guys need. And then I'm going to just take off. I'm going to leave and head back to Washington so that you guys get the assistance you need from my department of war. Now I have to say that sounds more plausible in an era where uh, before mass communications yeah, and satellite not like, phones. He's not, he's not calling them every week with a report. He's got to get back to somewhere at least where he can post a letter. But you can see why the War Department would want a man in Cuba, you know, who I guess has to get to the beach every week and, and slip a slip a missive to a some kind of open boat that then heads out toward Tampa or something. Literally our man in Havana. He would be our man, except except not in not Havana. Havana. He's out in the Sierra Maestra. Out, out in the brush yeah. somewhere. Uh, you looked it up, Sierra Maestra. Thank you. I didn't look it up. I, I knew it. I've been there. You've been to Eastern Cuba? Yeah. What were you doing there? Call me. I never told you this story. What were you doing in Eastern Cuba, comrade? I was, uh, let's see, I was, I was sitting around. You were scouting baseball players? <laughs> I was sitting around one day. <laughs> I, was, I was a scout for the Dodgers. <laughs> and, uh, and a, and a gal uh, 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 called me up and said, hey, I want to go to Cuba, um, and I need, I, need a, I need somebody to go with me. Will you go with me? And I said, yeah, I'll go to Cuba. And so we flew to Mexico. And just How like, long ago was this? You still had to go via somewhere oh, else. Oh, yeah. This is in the, 2000, this is in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And we went just like basically walked over to, uh, to the ticket counter of Cuban Airlines and I had just gotten done with a with a Canadian tour, mm-hmm. like my band had just finished up a Canadian tour, and so I had like a perfect Canadian accent. I had a perfect fake, Canadian accent. Fake papers saying uh, you're a Canadian diplomatic attaché. Diplomatic papers, and I had like twenty thousand dollars in Canadian money, which was worth I don't know eight thousand dollars or something. Who was paying you guys in cash? Is that how it works? Oh yeah, you know you the just venue, get everybody. Just... You know it's just t-shirt money or whatnot. Mm. I just had this big wad of Canadian money. We walked over and just bought a ticket. On Cubano Airlines, flew there, and we were there for two weeks. We rented a car. We drove all the way out to, not all the way to Guantanamo, but we went up out to the mountains. You guys were hungry for McDonald's. You wanted we, to go to Gitmo. <laughs> we, uh, we went down south. We drove all around, and um, maybe we were followed by uh, Cuban Secret Service the yeah. whole time, but we rented a car. We, uh, we maybe, stayed Maybe in, they were happy to host yeah. um, 
socialism curious Americans. We stayed in people's houses. We went to a resort at one point. We like did it up. And it was all just completely like... And it was medical tourism. You got your appendix out. And I got my appendix out. And I also <laughs> uh, bought a baby. No, I had a tremendous time. Castro was still alive. But he, Are those things connected? I, Castro, I had a tremendous time. Castro was still alive. I think it would have been different if he hadn't been. It would have been a weird vibe. But he'd handed, he had just recently handed the keys to Raul. Yeah. But he was still there and like kept kind of, you could tell he was still monkeying with stuff. He kept showing up at your hotel room. He did. And he was like, hey, you having a good time? Want a cigar? I got really into cigars while I was there. That's so predictable. <laughs> I know. It's so terrible. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I love these cigars. I'm a cigar and, guy now. You know, I had like four cigars a day. And then I came back to the United States completely strung out on cigars and realized that I, I had like a $200 a day cigar habit. And it was what precipitated me quitting smoking. Is that right? Yeah, because I got back and I was like, "Well, I can't, I can't just go back to smoking like export A's now. I've been smoking Cohibas." So, is this how you recommend people quit smoking? Yeah. First, first go to Cuba, start smoking several cigars a day, then smoke these incredible cigars, Habanos, and then come back and just—I dare you—try to go back to cigarettes. This seems like amazing advice. You can't do it. Anyway, I loved it there. Uh, that's great. You had a message to, I mean, not to Garcia, a message to Castro. I brought almost nothing back. No, that's not true. I brought a bunch of cigars back and going through customs, going through customs in Houston. Those have been, those have been contraband for 50 years at this point. Oh yeah. And I was super nervous. I had a bag full of cigars and I was waiting in line and I was trying to practice my, like, I'm a smuggler. Like I've seen all the Glenn Fry videos from the eighties. Like, how do you... You're wearing sunglasses. How do you get them to... How am I going to get these cigars out of my colon? Yeah, they're going to touch my underwear, but are they really going to find all the packages of cigars? <laughs> and I'm, I'm waiting in line, and the person in front of me at customs was this super high-maintenance kook that was like having a freak out and up there for a long time and, and uh, just had like lots and lots of problems. And they were taking so long that I started to legitimately get irritated because I was, I was like, I've got my whole story straight. Uh, smuggler coming through. Yeah. Can we get this over with? And they kept, it kept being more and more of a production until I was genuinely irritated. And by the time they finally got stamped through, when I walked up to the customs agent, I was like, what? I was a super Karen. I was like, yeah, I'm coming to America. I'm an American. Can we get, you know, just like really irritated? And he obviously was also ready to get on with his life. And he just was like, dunk, 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 dunk. He could I, tell you didn't have smuggler energy. Yeah, I didn't have smuggler energy. I had I had big, like angry USA guy energy. So just to recap, you have advice for smokers mm -hmm. and smugglers. Mm -hmm. Smokers should smoke more. Yes, until they stop smoking. To quit. That's the way to quit. And smugglers should just get really pissed off at the border guy. Whatever your plan is, it's not better than just sitting there getting super irritated. <laughs> you should just approach all police as somebody who's Who's irritated? What should you do if you don't have someone annoying in front of you? Can just, you, you like can Michael always, Jordan, can you invent something to it be annoying? Yeah, annoyed you can at? always find something to be annoyed at. Just look around. There's going to be somebody there that annoys you. Keep a thumbtack in your shoe. Mm -hmm. uh, Garcia did not last two weeks in Cuba. He, he uh, sorry, around. not Garcia. Uh, Andrew Rowan did not last. First Lieutenant Rowan. He turned right around and left immediately, despite his orders requiring him to stay. <laughs> 
And even worse, by the time he got back to the U.S., you know, by, you know, his boat got intercepted by some other freighter, which took him to... Marseille, where he lived for four years. <laughs> no, he got, to, he got to Florida pretty quick, oh, I think. Okay. Um, by the time he got back to American soil, his top secret mission was in all the papers, hmm. you know, about, about a U.S. spy being dispatched to the Cuban rebels. Because while in Jamaica, apparently he had just had a long chat with an AP reporter about his mission. <laughs> so he was not really in the good graces of the War Department when he got back to Washington. Right. He had, he Bad had, he had screwed up his mission and he had gotten his name in the headlines. And there probably would have been a court-martial for either thing, except that the, the Hearst and Pulitzer-controlled media loved him. You know, he was now a glamorous... Uh, oh. a, 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 uh, sure, what, uh, like super spy. Super spy w- figure. Was he handsome? It always helps if you're handsome. I feel like that's a question we ask a lot on Omnibus, mm-hmm. and we often will look up the figure and then rate them on a scale of one to ten. And it's okay if it's a guy. Yeah, one to ten on the handsome scale. Yeah, no, not handsome. No, Is he handsome by the standards of his day? He looks very much like a. Yeah, you could see him in a silent movie. He's got kind of a mustache turned up on one end, some kind of a Panama hat. So he looks like Poirot. Yeah, he looks like Poirot, including you know one cocked eyebrow, and um, he looks a little bit judgy, honestly. Okay, all right. Um, but maybe at the time that's a that's a very debonair. He's losing his hair, but at the time maybe he cuts a very dashing figure. How how should I know what uh, what's hot in eighteen ninety eight? Besides blowing up the main and then pretending it wasn't you. By the way, to, to you're, this, su- you're suggesting he blew up the main? <laughs> no, but America did. Oh, all to right. this day, you know, to this day, that's the official Cuban story. Like Havana Harbor has a USS main marker, but it's a touching tribute to all those victims of imperialist greed. I've seen it. Who were I've been there. who were sunk by this false flag operation. Uh, anywho, so as a result, uh, some Rowan screws up his mission and gets promoted to lieutenant colonel, <laughs> and then sent to the Philippines to oversee what? to oversee the the war there. Why does this not Why does this not happen to me? Right, <laughs> this would be this is perfect for me. Like like go on a mission, screw it up, get more famous as a result. Leak to the you know, leak to the papers and then leak to the papers. You keep and forgetting then, to call the New York Times <laughs> and then be known as like a dashing figure and get sent to the Philippines. Rowan uh, and uh, you know because of all this um, this myth that was created about what a hero he was his the, this intrepid first you know first man in Cuba first American on the scene in Cuba um, he received a distinguished service cross a silver citation star over the years his his reputation continued to to be burnished. He's like Flashman. <laughs> he is like Flashman, <laughs> including the fact that he only existed because someone writes about him. We're, we're, we're right. going to see what led to this, um, his Zelig-like fame. Uh, there, during World War II, there's a cargo ship named for him. Wow. He, he spent the early 20th century doing a series of speaking tours and getting keys to cities and, and having ladies, uh, luncheon groups stand up and applaud. The governor of Kansas comes to Andrew Summers Rowan Day in Atchison, Kansas, a place where he had never been, but his wife was born. This is all I ever wanted. So no, everybody has forgotten Andrew Summers Rowan, but he was a uh, he was a uh, he's a big star. And what a uh, who's somebody who's that? Um, you know Jessica Lynch or you know some some modern person that had to be rescued or do daring do in in Baghdad or or. Uh, or Peshawar or something. Yeah, there's you know, so many instances, but of course, I've forgotten about all of them. They got quickly forgotten. Yeah. But Rowan, 
Rowan's lasted for a few decades, not because of anything he did, but because of the popular misunderstanding about his amazing botched mission that became iconic through the work of one Elbert Hubbard. So not only do we have a cult leader, we have a cult leader named L. Hubbard. (laughs) (laughs) Elbert Hubbard was a very successful traveling soap salesman in uh, the Buffalo, New York area. Checks out. In the the uh, late late 19th century, who also uh, considered himself a real socialist anarchist reformer type. Huh. Well, I'd see the two things go together. Uh, you really can't, right? Because those are the op- those are the people that that uh, are uh, you know the anarchist socialists should oppose the door to door soap salesperson. Yeah, that's the person victimizing you and tricking you with yeah. with the power with, with the shady seductive power of capital. Soap should be free. You shouldn't have to pay for soap. No, that's not compatible with Marxism. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> you shouldn't have to pay for music or soap. Despite the fact that Hubbard had this self conception as a as a cutting edge, uh, social, progressive social reformer, and despite that he spent his life writing books with titles like "Jesus Was an Anarchist," mm-hmm. he was actually yep, weird. Can confirm. You can actually his story is much better explained by him being the first of these self help business guys. You know, the beginning of this 20th century fascination with little thin best selling parables. That, oh, tell, right. that tell a story about the ancient world and then explain to you how this is going to make you the best salesman of all time. Right, how to win friends and influence people. Exactly. I mean, he's kind of a proto-Dale Carnegie and, and, the, and the, the predecessors of, of Carnegie, these, all these 1930s guys like Napoleon Hill who wrote books about just how if you envision an outcome, it will happen. And this is really the essence of self-help books even today. Sure. The secret. The secret, the secret is if, you're, if good things are not happening to you, you're just not... Imagining them in sufficient clarity. That's how we started Omnibus. You and I manifest it <laughs> by just sitting and staring at you each other. You and I realize we don't have a podcast. Right. What if we just make one? Think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Here we are. And you know there is something to that. You're you're not going to actually achieve a goal you have not thought th- about thought about to any degree. <laughs> but you know this beginning of magical thinking that you just need to you just need to visualize your idea. Um. In the 1890s, I think around 1895, he writes a book called Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, which is, you can't, what would you guess that book was about? If you're in a bookstore and you see Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great. Oh, we're going to see the, see how the Carnegie's decorate? It's like an MTV Cribs Uh of the 1890s. (laughs) Or does he just go and knock, it's a very short book because he goes and knocks on the front doors of all these rich people's houses and they're like, can we help you? Gets thrown out by a butler. Yeah. Yeah, because he's trying to sell them soap. (laughs) (laughs) No, this was just a series of biographical sketches with his kind of 1890 style moralizing of, well, now let me tell you about... Shakespeare, both talented and nice. Sure. Leonardo, so nice. Uh, you know, also talented. Uh, you know, here's, uh, let's meet Claudius and let's meet Alexander the Great. People back then loved to read. Edifying little short stories. Of about, famous people. Because yeah. they're the ones that change the course of history. The great man theory of history. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. This is very much about the, unfortunately, he cannot find a publisher for his little journeys to the homes of the great. Hmm. So what do you do if you're trying to manifest a publisher? Self-publish. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> you start a commune in upstate New York. Whoa. He, 
He begins the. Uh, that's kind of a roundabout way, but I'm with you. He go, he starts a press called the Roycroft Press. Oh, Roycroft! In imitation of uh, of William Morris, the the British arts and crafts genius, who, you know, when he couldn't find the the people to make him the kind of leather goods he wanted or the print the wallpaper he wanted, he just moved to the countryside and learned how to do it. Right. So he moves outside Buffalo to what is now. Uh, you know, I think it's East Aurora, the suburb of Buffalo, and starts a little commune called Roycroft. And at first, it's just his vanity press. Can you imagine a time when Buffalo, New York was where, like, all the cutting-edge art stuff was happening? That's where all the weirdos go to found their sex cults. His is not a sex cult, by all accounts. So, Albert Hubbard is the founder of Roycroft, the arts and crafts colony in New York? That is correct. Wow. It, it becomes a magnet for, I mean, it just starts out as his little vanity press, but you know, all the typefaces are beautiful kind of William Morris looking arts and crafts stuff. And that's because he has started to draw to him all the great design and uh, craftsmen and architecture people of his time, people to run his publishing house and bind his books and make copper goods and leather goods and furniture. And this becomes, as you've said, like a super influential American uh, design movement of the time. Yeah, it's the, it, it, during, do you remember, it was not that long ago, but now I guess it was 25 years ago or whenever, when the bungalow culture in Seattle was really ascendant. Everybody was recognizing arts and crafts and bungalows. Because all we've a, got here is these little craftsmen. And yeah. You got to celebrate them. And so everywhere you looked, there was this very distinctive typeface, this Roycroft sort of, uh, you know, it seems at once both hand drawn and also kind of. It's a little bit runic, but, yeah, but also. Like yeah. Uh, and it just looks a lot like the kind of Art Nouveau script you'd see on a, on a Mucha poster in a dorm as well right um or a paris subway yeah exactly exactly the metropolitan font but uh he finds himself at the center of the american arts and crafts movement and he's luckily he's got a lot to say you know he now that he's the center of a movement and he's been a successful soap salesman he knows what's what and he starts to put out two monthly journals one of which is called and he also he thinks of himself as a social reformer so one of his journals is called the philistine a periodical of protest, hmm. which has his satirical takes on the events of the day. It's it's wrapped in butcher paper. Be- it's it's bound in butcher paper because, as he liked to say, it's got red meat inside. Wait, I think I might have a copy of this. That would be great if you I had a copy I, of I the Philistine. I think I do have a copy of the Philistine somewhere in my extensive library. But, I need to go find and that. And this guy loves thinking himself as a as an as a artist and uh a, a reformer, but as we'll see in the story, it really, he's still the same soap salesman at heart on the night of Washington's birthday, 1889. He and, uh, his son Bert are having an argument over dinner about the Spanish American war. So basically it's just like your house. Yeah, <laughs> basically <laughs> they, they're arguing about who the greatest hero of the Spanish American war was. Was it, Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, or is it some other figure I can't remember because who cares about the Spanish-American War? What's his son's name? Bert. And his name is Elbert. Oh, so yeah. It's, it's, it's probably Elbert Jr. I didn't yeah. even put that together. <laughs> Look at you, John, making historical <laughs> hey, connections. I'm just looking for the most famous person of the Spanish-American War. 
And his son holds that really the hero was this Andrew Summers Rowan, you know, because Bert has kind of imbibed the the now popular version of his heroic mission through the the Hearst and the Pulitzer Press. And, you know, so they don't have this version that he was just kind of a guy out of his depth who got homesick and almost got court-martialed. Right. It failed at his mission. Now he's just a, 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 a intrepid rebel in the mountains of inner Cuba. And... So uh, this is what's in Hubbard's mind as he goes upstairs to write his uh, latest edition of the Philistine. Latest edition for the Philistine, for which, through a screw up of his of his employees, there is now an empty page that he needs to compose filler text for. Hmm. And he and so out of uh, a combination of uh, patriotic respect for First Lieutenant Rowan and anger at his employees. Uh-huh. And uh, as a true revolutionary would be. As, as a great uh, socialist anarchist always does, he's sick of his employees. Yes. He writes the famous essay, A Message to Garcia. Ah, uh, A Message to Garcia. Yes, but it's a out of the mistaken belief that Rowan is, has an important... Well, l- let me tell you how it starts. Okay. In all this Cuban business, he writes in the next issue of The Philistine, there is one man stands out on the horizon of my memory like Mars at perihelion. Sure. You can see why this guy couldn't get a publisher. When war broke out between Spain and the United States, it was very necessary to communicate quickly with the leader of the insurgents. Garcia was somewhere in the mountain fastnesses of Cuba. No one knew where. No mail or telegraph could reach him. The president must secure his cooperation. And quickly, what to do? I'm breathless. Someone said to the president, there's a fellow by the name of Rowan will find Garcia for you, if anybody can. I'm imagining this conversation... Happening with the president. He's already twice used this 1890s thing where you could, instead of saying, there is one man who stands out, you can say, there is one man stands out. Where is one man stands out? People love to do that. I'm sure the president had a direct hand in, in choosing Rowan, too. The president picks up a red phone on his desk and says, get me first Lieutenant Rowan. Rowan was sent for and given a letter to be delivered to Garcia. How the fellow by the name of Rowan, quote, I don't know who's being quoted there, took the letter sealed it up in an oilskin pouch, strapped it over his heart, Whoa! in four days landed by night off the coast of Cuba from an open boat, disappeared into the jungle, and in three weeks came out on the other side of the island, having traversed a hostile country on foot and having delivered his letter to Garcia, are things I have no special desire now to tell in detail. This sounds exactly like my trip to Cuba, especially if you don't tell it in detail. Especially how it's all made up after the fact. <laughs> no, not By yours. a guy that was not anywhere close. The point I wish to make is this. McKinley gave Rowan a letter to be delivered to Garcia. Rowan took the letter and did not ask, where is he at? So this is, how he, this is where he gets to his point. Sure. Livingston, I presume. By the eternal, there is a man whose form should be cast in deathless bronze and the statue placed in every college in the land. Because he just went with no plan? Exactly. That That's was, just exactly me. It is not book learning young men need, John, yeah, luckily for okay. you, nor instruction about this or that, Sure. but a stiffening of the vertebrae which will cause them to be loyal to a trust, to act promptly, concentrate their energies, do the thing, do carry the thing. a message to Garcia. Carry a message to Garcia. Do the thing. Stiff back. So this becomes a signifier for everything his lazy employees are not. And he goes on to say this specifically. Garcia is dead now, but there are other Garcias. Mm. No man who has endeavored to carry out an enterprise where many hands were needed, but has been well nigh appalled at times by the imbecility of the average man. Ouch. Look at this good socialist here. That doesn't sound very socialist. The inability or unwillingness to concentrate on a thing and do it. Slipshot assistance, foolish inattention, dowdy indifference. Young people, in other words. Am I right? 
and half-hearted work seem the rule. And no man succeeds unless by hook or by crook or threat he forces or bribes other men to assist him. Or mayhap God in his goodness performs a miracle and sends him an angel of light for an assistant. Albert Hubbard would be great on Twitter. <laughs> he would be one of these guys pretending he's a good liberal on Twitter, but yeah, you know, and then complaining about United Airlines uh, losing complaining his bags. about how his uh, barista screwed up his coffee order. You reader, you there, put this. You boy, what day is it? It's Washington's birthday. No, you reader, put this matter to a test. You are sitting now in your office. Okay. Six clerks are within your call. All right. So we're invited to imagine that we are a, a boss of a, of a great enterprise. Sure. There's a, there are scriveners all around. That's who the Arts and Crafts movement newsletter is being addressed to. Summon anyone and make this request. Please look in the encyclopedia and make a brief memorandum for me concerning the life of Correggio. You there. You there, boy. You there. My, consult the encyclopedia and make a brief memorandum on the life of Correggio. Go. Will the clerk quietly say, yes, sir, and go do the task? No. On your life, he will not. No. No. I could confirm that you would not get a good response. Uh, he will look at you out of a fishy eye Ugh. and ask one or more of the following questions. Who was he? Well, which encyclopedia? Oh, he's so dumb. I hate this kid. Where is the encyclopedia? Oh. Uh, was I hired for that? Whoa. Now he's a sassy, lazy That's kid. That's insolent. That's not just a fishy eye. That's an impudent one. At least he didn't say, I prefer not to. Do yeah. <laughs> Don't you mean Bismarck? Well, what's the matter with Charlie doing it? Is, is he dead? Is there any hurry? Shan't I bring you the book and let you look it up yourself? Wait, what do you want to know for? What was that about Bismarck? Uh, yeah, don't you mean, instead of Correggio, oh, I see. the oft-confused <laughs> Correggio-like figure, Bismarck. Correggio, I believe, is a Renaissance painter. Am I right about this? Correggio is a painter. So, yeah, I don't know why he would... Maybe, like, that's just how dumb your shitty employees are. That they sometimes, they can't tell the difference between Correggio and a man nothing like Correggio. Correggio uh, famously... Uh uh, this may surprise you, but uh, but uh, painted uh, religiously themed paintings. Did you think in I was the style of the time? Did you think I was actually asking you to prepare a memorandum <laughs> on Correggio? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I just naturally because, you there, John, because I'm a member of the the extremely energetic Generation X. Please, I can't wait to get an assignment. Now we're for, we're Gen X slackers, so we are yeah. not identifying with the mean uh, memorandum assigning boss in this scenario. No, no. I, I can't imagine we have too many listeners who would. Uh, identify with the boss. I don't know. You know, I think uh, I think generally, though, I and my cohort, uh, given that assignment, would go, oh, okay. Yeah. And then, you know, paste something together. and Like, if there's anything Gen X can do, it's a book report. Yeah, we, we wouldn't back sass. We would just do a kind of like... Just do a half-ass job. Yeah, just a the basic minimum job and, you know, get it in on time and under budget. I always call that the slacker's veto because I uh, come from a religious tradition with a lay clergy. Right. Which means you're always being told to do things by <laughs> some unqualified uh, ecclesiastical authority. Right. Who's and you, only in a temporary job, yeah, right? Who will be gone, a rotating job. will be gone in three years. So all you, you can just <laughs> smile and nod and say, absolutely. Yes. And sir. then you just slow walk it. <laughs> And he's forgotten in six months. He, he has forgotten about it in six months, and he has been forgotten in 18 months. Wait, now, how is Mormonism the fastest growing religion in the world if that's the, if, if slow walking is the mentality? Oh, that's because I'm, uh, I'm atypical. <laughs> oh, because you're Generation X. For everyone like me, there were 10 guys that were really who were like, yes, it. in short sleeve white shirts, who were like, yes, sir. <laughs> On our way. I would love to start doing that new report. 
so he goes on in this vein for another a thousand words, but just in in this purple prose continues to uh, to applaud the not you know t- talking about the. We have been recently been hearing such maudlin sympathy expressed for the downtrodden denizen of the sweatshop, sweatshop and the quote homeless wanderer searching for honest employment. This Wait, is straight up, did, this is straight up Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, when did he turn into Tucker Carlson? <laughs> and with it all, often go many hard words for the men in power. John, nothing is said about the employer who grows old before his time in a vain attempt to get frowsy ne'er-do-wells to do intelligent work. Wow, frowsy ne'er-do-wells. So, you know... I I want an omnibus t-shirt that says that. This is straight up uh, National Review who will speak for the landlord's uh, uh, rhetoric. Right. And... And and, and does the... Does this, and he publishes it in the pages of his artsy commune newsletter. But does the Philistine have such a, a a wide circulation at this point that this becomes like a legendary letter? Here's what happens. Uh, it somehow gets in the hands of a small number of wealthy people who have been waiting for someone to tell them, yes, aren't you all your employees idiots except for you? Right. And they think this is the most insightful view of the labor situation they have ever it's definitely got some purple phrase, and it's the kind of it's the kind of literary phrasing that's very popular at the time. So th- to them, it's every line is poetry, and you know. And he ends. Here's his final paragraph, which you know is what just rings in the ears of his of his moneyed you know railroad stock owning readership. <laughs> Have I put the matter too strongly? I mean, he actually says, you know, I'm a you, nothing is holding socialism back except for. The fact that the common man is such a lot of lazy, shiftless idiots. Yeah, foot dragging like uh, shirkers. Like, if they were just, you know, working the communal farm faster. Yeah, exactly. Um, Socialism so, so would succeed if everybody was a property owning. So it's all clearly, I'm still a good lefty, but look, we all know that one socialist who won't actually write about Correggio. So he really would be a Facebook star, not a Twitter star. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> So here's the final paragraph. Have I put the matter too strongly? Possibly I have. But when all the world has gone a-slumming, I wish to speak a word of sympathy for the man who succeeds, the man who, against great odds, has directed the efforts of others, and having succeeded, finds there's nothing in it, nothing but bare board and clothes. Oh, wow. Because you know how the world never never rewards a... Uh, like a striver. A loud manager. <laughs> I have carried a dinner pail and worked for a day's wages, and I have also been an employer of labor, and I know there is something to be said on both sides. <laughs> He literally says, I carried a dinner pail. Also, I was the boss. I am going to both sides capitalism. There is no excellence per se in poverty. Rags are no recommendation. And all employers are not rapacious and high-handed any more than all poor men are virtuous. He's both sizing the shit out of this. When is is somebody finally going to stick it to poor people, John? You know, poor people... Have a have like an overinflated reputation, Ken. They've really had it coming for too long, and I'm finally going to speak truth to power, yeah. to powerlessness. And not all bosses are bad. You find good people on both sides. My heart goes out to the man who does his work when the boss is away, as well as when he is home. And the man who, when given a letter for Garcia, quietly takes the missive without asking any idiotic question, and with no lurking intention of chucking it into the nearest sewer or doing aught else but delivers it. Never gets laid off, nor has to go on a strike for higher wages. <laughs> All these lazy, <laughs> lazy labor unions. Civilization is one long, anxious search for just such individuals. True. Anything such a man asks will be granted. His kind is so rare that no employer can afford to let him go. He is wanted in every city, town, and village. 
in every office, shop, store, and factory. The world cries out for such. He is needed and needed badly. The man who can, and then in big, bold text, carry a message to Garcia. So there's really no argument being made except that my employees suck. Right. People these days are lazy and shiftless. Great men like me have good ideas, and all we get from our from our underlings is, well, how am I going to do that? Look, buddy, that's your job. Yeah. But there's no, uh, in this story, there's no, like, I want ingenious people. The The message is, don't think, do. Yeah, just, just if everybody would just stop making excuses, they would all inherently be good at the, at the lofty goal that I have assigned them without working out all the details. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. You know, it's never a fault of management if there's a leftover page of filler in this week's The Philistine. Yeah, go make me a report on Cravaggio. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I'll know when you hand it in. It really is the great man theory, you know, that there's a small group of powerful people with the intention to better the human race, and everywhere they are being thwarted by their lazy underlings who just want better pay for their families. Right. And it's not really the most, even in 1898, was not the way you would expect to hear a um, a reformer discuss no, uh, I think the, the labor ref- situation think, in America. I think he's not really a reformer, but I could. Even though he wrote Jesus was an anarchist in 1910. <laughs> but you can see uh, where this would resonate uh, pretty strongly with the country club set. And they all endlessly reprint it in pamphlets, uh, you know, with print runs of 100,000. Because they want all their employees to see, yes, this is a guy who gets it. When I tell you to jump, stop saying how high. When I tell you to do the charge of the light brigade, stop Reasoning why. So every time you went to the bathroom uh, during this period, there'd be one one sitting on the toilet. Yeah, and a little sign saying, um, wash your hands and get back to work. Right. Um, I wonder who in the workforce is inspired by this. Right. Like, who's going to read that and be like, that's me. I need to... I need to write that memorandum about Correggio. Yeah, why am I always like, isn't that Brandon's job? I need to be just go through the jungles like that cool hero. And the fact that it's totally ahistorical is just kind of a, a funny footnote. You can almost guarantee that anyone actually, any like young person actually inspired by reading a thing like that is a sociopath. <laughs> They're going to end up being exactly the boss you don't want in the future. They were already, um, you know, a bad soap salesman and have been promoted out of that because they were no good at it and are now middle managers, right? Such a strange association with arts and crafts. I know, right? That's what I love about this story. And the the pamphlet actually went on to have a long life. Um, modern estimates say that there were at least four, it was printed at least four million times. Whoa. The Boy Scouts of America loved it. It was an endless part of Boy Scouting just because of the idea that, um, that you, you know, you, that a, an able person would just strike out into the wild and do the mission no matter what uh, obstacles were presented by the outdoors or the Spanish army or the jungle or whatever. That squares with my experience of scouting. Right. It's a paramilitary organization. (laughs) But also, it lives on even today in military education circles. This became an endless part of the curriculum at uh, U.S. military academies. Uh, You know, you you can't... Yeah, and even if you're a grunt, you know, you can't go, uh, I guess, a month in the Marines with having your NCO talk about a message to Garcia. And just what, you know, 
especially if I guess if you're an, if you're training to become an officer, this is how you this is what you learn about how to motivate your men. You know, you need this is the problem with the military is we have not enough Andrew whatever his name was Andrew Summers Rowans, um, and they're starting to be pushback. You know, like this is a very old timey view of the military. This is charge of the light brigade. Just do what I say. Stuff. It leads to dumb officers who don't understand the actual problems or the needs of their men. We want initiative and determination, but we also, that's not enough. Um, so, you know, in modern times, there's actually been some pushback, but this weird, <laughs> weird non-anarchist essay, this weird pro-corporate essay spent like a century at the center of a lot of U.S. officer training. God, isn't that interesting? You know, the a lot of the commentary on the war in Ukraine is uh, uh, kind of focused on the fact that it's the non-commissioned officers, the sergeants, uh, and the corporals, and the way that we in the American military empower the NCOs to be both like um, to understand the mission and then be flexible in the in hmm. you, you know performing the mission. And it's that flexibility and the empowering of the sergeants that makes our military effective and that the Russian... The rigid ex-Soviet apparatus. Right, where NCOs are not empowered and all the authority comes from the officers down, uh, they're not flexible and they end up, um, they end up kind of like mounting their offensives all at the same time every day. Like, Oh, it's seven o'clock. That's when we fire our cannons. And then I'm sure the generals back home would just do what uh, Hubbard did and blame the idiots, you know, the idiotic infantry. If they had just done their job and taken that objective, like I said to, I mean, I love a lot of the commentary about the Ukraine war because of course everybody forgets that we just spent 20 years fighting a war in Afghanistan that we <laughs> <laughs> we uh, basically lost in four days after we left, but uh, but you know, but I do see the the difference in military culture and the fact that sergeants in the in Western militaries are really empowered. It kind of goes against this idea that that what a big man, what a general needs, is just a bunch of people that because the thing about the message to Garcia, like he's he Rowan is. He's not just some uh, runner. He's an officer. He's a right. a man of uh, distinction. He's he's been handpicked for this elite task. It's really not how the story. The, what happened is nothing like what how Hubbard misremembered it in an angry fit in eighteen eighty nine. Yeah, this isn't a message to your clerk. This is a message to middle management, right? This is something that the boss inspires his manager to think about themselves in a way, right? Like, Oh, I'm, I'm Rowan and I just need all these guys that work for me to, to, uh, to give me my reports. And at least all these awful self-help books that came after 18, I think I said 89 after 1899. Um, at least they're more along the lines of how do you motivate yeah. your men? Not, whereas this essay is all just like, it's not, there's nothing prescriptive at all. Like, how did I get these awful men? 
Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> which I don't think is in any management book today. It's so funny that he doesn't just say Davy Crockett, which is who he wants. Right. Just make up a guy if you're going to make up. So- I mean, it was then timely, the Spanish-American War. Yeah. Hubbard all, you know, spent the rest of his life mythologizing this. In 1914, he claimed that 40 million copies were in print. His son later claimed 80 million by 1926, people were saying 200. Like when Rowan Rowan lived to hear about this, and you know, as I said, got all these decorations for being for epitomizing a new kind of great man. Can you imagine being his kids? <laughs> so he once claimed I think 225 million are in print, and there was some elaborate story about how uh, a message to Garcia made its way to the Russian railroad industry and thence into the Russian navy, and then during the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese got a handle on it and translated it and it changed their whole uh, military structure. So there was all this, for a century, there was this kind of military myth about how it was on every continent changing lives, none of which appeared to be, appeared to actually be true. Um, but this is, this is like, uh, but as a result, the phrase a message to Garcia became a, just a shorthand for, you know, an important mission, a thing that's got to get done. You can hear Nixon use it that way on the Watergate tapes um, there were two movie adaptations, a Thomas Edison silent, and then a 1933 version with pretty big stars, Wallace Beery and a young Barbara Stanwyck, um, just kind of dramatizing the whole jungle adventure nature of it, even though that never happened. This is like, uh, it's like Tuesdays with Maury, except... <laughs> except, uh, what if the military got a hold of Tuesdays with Maury and spent the next hundred years explaining that, you know, the five people you meet in heaven was the key to understanding your... Your battalion. <laughs> and that concludes A Message to Garcia, entry 779.PR2513, certificate number 42914 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you are ever given a secret mission, in the much more likely event that you're just some slacker who doesn't want to do a good job. Yeah. <laughs> Hurry up and listen to the next episode, you loser. Uh, you can waste time at your dead-end job by going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and looking up the funny things that Ken and I, who haven't worked an honest day in the last 15 to 20 years, depending. Write that memo about Correggio later. Yeah, right. Well, well I mean... Does your boss really need it? Your boss doesn't need it. You're busy working on your Marvel Comics Universe fanfic. You don't need to be doing <laughs> like, what your boss is. Like all millenni- lazy millennials. <laughs> I just like how it's so timeless. Just yeah. some old guy being like, the young people suck in a way that we never did. We never used to suck. Not like people today. We would write reports about Correggio like that. Yeah. We, uh, Generation X, firmly is committed to the fact that we never intended to do a good job. Mm. That was not, in fact, our plan was to <laughs> drag our feet until somebody else Got the got the assignment right. It's more like a a, a message to Jerry Garcia. Yeah, bro. I guess that's more of a boomer thing. We had a message to Andy Garcia. To Andy Garcia, <laughs> which was you shouldn't have said yes to Don't Godfather, do Godfather Three. Godfather Three. Yes, that's just what I was thinking. Um, I definitely never did a report. Uh, before three hours before it was due. Were you that way? Did yeah. you work on reports? Even though I'm like classic high school overachiever, I was very much like, what's the latest I can start? This? It's one o'clock in the morning, the night before it's due. Because it didn't matter if you were an over or an underachiever. In Gen X, that's just how 
we rule. Just how we did it. Uh, you can go on at Ken Jennings to see how much work he puts into his tweets and at None. John Roderick uh, to see, at least in the archive, that I actually did really, really try hard. <laughs> uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can mail us things, including uh, old butcher paper bound copies of Roycroft era what magazines i guess missives books send us uh, tied together bound with twine send us roycroft wallpaper and yeah. uh send us roycroft furniture and, while you're at it and and uh copper engraving you can go on uh facebook or twitter or instagram or tiktok reddit discord discourse discourse and find futurelings like-minded futurelings the reason that there are all those different places is that, although they're all future links, they are not like-minded. None of them can agree which social media platform to is superior to the others. We called in all our clerks and said, start a omnibus fan group. And they were all like, oh, whatever. I guess I'll do it on some other platform. I guess I'm already on this gamer site. I'll do it there. <laughs> and uh, please... I did the address already. Please support the show because we are truly uh, socialists, anarchists. We do not want you to work harder. We want you to work less, better, but less, lesser. I feel like Hubbard would say you need to work smarter and harder. Yeah, right. He's not part of this anti-work movement. He wants to work less. Yeah. By having his young apprentices do all his work. He wants to have hours to sit around in his... um, big plantation house arguing with his son about yeah. the heroes of the Spanish-American War. Are you sure you don't want me to bring the encyclopedia to you so you <laughs> can do your own report on Caravaggio? Sounds like you care about Caravaggio. Bismarck. It doesn't matter. Whatever. I've I've lost the plot a long time ago. Anyway, go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and keep Ken and myself honest by pledging to support our show which will keep us continuing to try and do a, as good a job as two Generation X guys can do. We will represent your interests if you support the show. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, it was probably some $15 an hour part-timers fault that's that's what i think yeah damn kids in which case this recording like all our recordings may be our final word but if providence allows we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus